we are finding ourselves all the way in the last chapter of James. James chapter 5, beginning this morning. I remember when I was in seminary um, doing some youth work at a church and the senior pastor was at that time preaching through the book of James and he says, hey, I'm going to be gone next week. I need you to pick up for me where I'm leaving off. And I said, hey, that's great. You know, a young seminary student's always anxious to get in the pulpit and preach. Maybe he shouldn't be so anxious with the story I'm about to tell you. <laughs> but um, I said, well, where are you? And he said, well, I need you to do James chapter 5, first six verses. I was like, yeah. Well, I, so I, wrote, I made a note of that, and then I continued with my life, which was a lot of reading and a lot of writing and prepping for Wednesday nights. And I'm thinking, hey, I'll, I'll jump on this Friday night. And so I jumped in it on Friday night, and I started... I started reading in James 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted. And their rust will be a witness against you and, you will con and it will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days you've stored up your treasure. And I started thinking, man, did he leave me this text on purpose? I'm thinking he did. No wonder he got out of town. How? What? what? Well, yeah, hey, I've got resources, right? I got commentaries. So I pull out my commentaries. I start reading through my commentaries, and they say, like, nothing. Don't you love those commentaries that just kind of politely skip over the portions that they don't really know how, what to say and what it maybe really means? Yeah. Those are the pastor's favorite commentaries. And so I started... Um, Man, I started struggling mad. I was, but I thought, it'll, it'll come to me. It'll come to me. So I, so I get up Sunday morning, and I'm preaching, and I get into it, and I start going into the first couple of verses, and I'm going, and, and I didn't have a clue where I was going, David. I, I didn't. And at one point, I literally, I closed my eyes, and I told the truth. I said, I really don't know what these verses mean. So we're just going to move on. Look at verse 4. And so we just picked up and moved on to verse 4. And some people came up and they said, you know, you might be the first honest pastor. <laughs> but getting a chance to teach James in its totality, it helps bring context to bear on said meaning of some really unique verses here. And why these verses are here and how best to make an understanding of these verses. So let's jump into James 5, verse 1, and let's see what sense we can make of where James is headed. He says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Now, does it, now there's a lot of young folks here this morning, so perhaps you don't know Charles Stanley, but I think this is James' best impersonation of a Charles Stanley, or I should say Charles Stanley's best impersonation of a James when Stanley always says, now listen to me. If you've ever heard Charles Stanley preach, you've heard him say that on many occasions. Now listen to me. And it's a way to grab your attention and to, to kind of pull you in because what I'm about to say to you, you really need to know. And so James is saying, now listen to me. But notice to whom he says, you rich. And then he says to them, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Who are these people. In chapter 4, we see that James, ending up chapter 4, is speaking directly to true believers. He's given his herald, his call, to genuine saving repentance that leads to true faith in Christ. And then he calls true believers to not have animosity against one another, to stop speaking against one another. If it's not, thus saith the Lord, written, learn to live and let live. And now he turns and he says, come now you rich. So who are these rich? And I think in trying to get an understanding for that, we go to James chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, where he says to those who are dispersed abroad, he says, is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? 
Do they, the rich, not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? So I think it's fair to say from James 2, 6 and 7, the rich of whom James is now writing are the rich non-believers. They are perhaps those who are blaspheming the fair name by which Christians have been called, the name of Christ. And the fact that they are non-believers, I think James makes fairly clear as we continue on in our context in chapter 5. And so it would seem that these rich are the non-believers who are the source of most of the trials that these believers have been encouraged to endure, to consider as joy, knowing that God will use such trials to grow them up spiritually. And, and when we go back to chapter 1, though it's a little bit of a lengthy reading, I want to read through this for you because it seems like we have James coming full circle here. So he's writing to the dispersed abroad. He says, Consider it joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom on how to do that, on how to do everything he just said, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Verse 7. That man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances, and I think it's fair to say that the brother of humble circumstances would be the brethren whom he's calling to consider it joy when you encounter the various trials of life that you're going through and that you're living through. So these brethren of humble circumstances are to glory in their high position. And their high position is in the fact that they have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And this is why you can live with a biblical worldview being tested in your faith and that God's going to produce something in you spiritually that otherwise wouldn't be produced in you through the trials that you are enduring. And then he says right here in verse 10, and the rich man, so here we have the rich again, is to glory in his humiliation. Because like flowering grass, he will pass away, for the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too, the rich man, in the midst of his pursuits, will fade away. So it would seem that those are the same rich, when it gets to chapter 2, who are oppressing you, the same rich who are blaspheming the fair name by which they've been called. So it would seem to make fairly good sense that James again has come full circle towards the end of his letter in writing to these believers. And although I do not believe that he's specifically addressing non-believers, I believe his intended audience is still the same, that is, the church, the true believers. But he's writing them and addressing the rich directly for the purpose of still and yet edifying the church. In other words, by writing about these non-believers whom are the sole, perhaps, source of the trials under which they are enduring, it seems that he is purposefully instructing these brethren about two potential pitfalls that they may encounter that might tempt them or challenge them to abandon their faith. One would be as a result of great persecution. Many a person has abandoned their faith under persecution. Leads them to perhaps question God's sense of justice. And James, it seems, is using this occasion, the entirety of the book, to remind them of God's ultimate justice against their oppressor. Remember, chapter 1, verse 11. The rich man in the midst of all his pursuits will fade away into judgment. So don't necessarily want to be like them. Don't wish that you were on their side of the tracks instead of your side of the tracks. This is why it's important to remember that the brother of humble circumstances, verse 9, is to glory in your high position. 
You've been seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. That's a pretty high position, wouldn't you say? It's about as high as it gets. And from that position, we have perspective. It's what we call a biblical worldview through which we see not only our circumstances, but the circumstances of the entirety of the world. Right? It's what we do. And secondly, it seems that James is reminding them that in light of the great loss, I mean, their financial hardships, some of them may be tempted to jump ship and to abandon their faith in Christ for comfort and ease, for greater prosperity. James is again using this occasion to remind them of the peril, the short-term benefits, excuse me, of financial prosperity. Indeed, a short-term benefit because all people are like flower of the grass that falls off. The beauty of its appearance is destroyed and fades away. All people will face an eternity very quickly. I think James reminded the believers, the brethren, of that last week in our passage at the end of James chapter 4. These two issues, ultimate justice against the unrighteous and the short-term benefits of financial prosperity, it seems, are woven together through these first six verses of James chapter 5. Now, those concepts perhaps bring a little bit of perplexity to the thinking of these brethren, mostly of whom are um, individuals uh, who are needing to... um, who are, of the, who are of Jewish origin, who uh, perhaps have been reading their, their Old Testament uh, Bible for some time and, and are aware of some passages that they've seen there. And I am missing one of my slides here, and I'm desperately looking for it. Do you see me looking for this here? I can't find it. So I'm going to go back here and wait so you can turn in your copy of God's Word with you. Sometimes we keep you from maybe turning to pages as often with me flicking the screen here. But from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13. Turn over to Matthew 13. Beginning in verse 18, seems that James would be aware of the deceitfulness of riches and how that can choke the word. His uh, brother, his half-brother, had taught on that. Now, there's a gentleman by the name of Bart Ehrman who has a book out, it's been out for some time now, that's titled, God's Problem. I'm sorry, I shouldn't chuckle, but God's problem. How the Bible fails to answer our most important question, why we suffer. Now, I'm guessing he didn't find James's testimony a sufficient word on the subject. Had he read the book of James, perhaps he would have discovered therein a sufficient answer. And there's no doubt he, ha- he did read the book of James and found it to be insufficient which is indicative, uh, indicative of, of, of true spiritual blindness. I mean, such is the problem of unbelief, right? Unbelief prohibits one from clearly seeing spiritual truth that's clearly laid out and revealed in the Word of God. And the wisdom of God appears to those who are spiritually blind as foolishness. I'm going to quote just a little section here from Bart Ehrman from his book. This is dealing with the problem of of suffering, which James is encouraging these brothers to count as all joy. He says, consider it joy when you're encountering the various trials that you're going through. Ehrman said, eventually, though I felt compelled to leave Christianity altogether, I did not go easily. 
On the contrary, I left kicking and screaming, wanting desperately to hold on to the faith I had known since childhood and had come to know intimately from my teenage years onward. But I came to a point where I could no longer believe. It's a very long story, but the short version is this. I realized that I could no longer reconcile the claims of faith with the facts of life. In particular, I could no longer explain how there can be a good and all-powerful God actively involved with this world given the state of things. For many people who inhabit this planet, life is a cesspool of misery and suffering. I came to a point where I simply could not believe that there is a good and kindly disposed ruler who is in charge of it. Now, I, I read this on purpose. It's shocking, for one thing, but it also lets us know that this kind of abandonment of a faith claim still happens even today. And James is wanting to write to warn the brethren who are dispersed abroad greetings from the temptations of the abandonment of their faith claim because of persecutions and because of the difficulty of the financial hardships that they are continuing to face. And I believe he's giving a unique word to them this morning in the first six verses by addressing the rich again, as he did in chapter 1 and as he did in chapter 2, to bring some things to their attention. Listen, people deconstructing their faith claim as a result of the harsh reality as of human suffering in the world is not something new. You've heard me say this before over and over. There's nothing new under the sun, right? Nothing. And, and think about it. In Ehrman's case, he's not even the one suffering. He lived a very prosperous and posh, soft life. He's just thinking about other people and the fact that other people out there in the world are suffering. And struggling with how to manage that. James is writing to people who actually are suffering. And he's calling them to persevere under trial. Knowing one day they will receive the crown of life. And thus my overhead picks up where I was missing. James says, and isn't it beautiful. The word of God does not ever not touch subjects that strum deep to the heart of human existence. Such as suffering. And the reality of that in the world, and the need to persevere. James said in 1.12, Blessed is the man, anthropos, that's man, it could be used in a more generic sense, and in many occasions and contexts it is, it's just talking about people. But blessed is the man who what? Perseveres under trial. James says that once this person has been approved, once they have gone all the way to the end of their life, and perhaps their circumstances, their outward circumstances, have never changed, perhaps. Perhaps they can, but perhaps they don't. Once they've been approved, through perseverance, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So, in light of persecution, in light of trials happening, James is saying to the believers, you need to persevere all the way to the end. And don't forget the promise. There's a crown of life awaiting you at the end. And so if you take time to give consideration, due consideration, and we should, to the brevity of life on planet earth and the longevity of what we would call eternity. God's justice will be meted out perfectly for all eternity. You just wait and see. You just wait and see. Hang in there. Hang in there all the way to the end. The Word of God never sweeps human suffering under the rug and has clearly shown us that ultimately, it has shown us that ultimately all human suffering, again, with a biblical worldview, we think through such topics, results and is the result of sin, 
Adam plunged all of the human race, red, yellow, black, and white. There's but one human race, one blood. Adam plunged all of us under the curse of sin. And this is why all suffering in varying degrees is upon the plight of everybody, red and yellow, black and white, on this planet we call Earth. But no matter to what degree you may suffer or somebody else may suffer or the plight of the suffering of those people over there somewhere that, that has me up at night, no matter the, the degree or the plight of their suffering, God in His mercy and boundless grace to freely demonstrate that He is a God of both judgment, justice, which will come, and mercy sent forth His Son, His only Son, to ransom such fallen lost sinners from Adam's curse. All anyone need do is come to Jesus. That's it. For the free forgiveness of sins. And this is one of the dangers of the health and wealth gospel of the Joel Osteens out there. That gospel does not preach around the world. It preaches to rich American cultures or rich Chinese cultures or wherever there's a lot of wealth. That preaches really well. But you go to the outback bush and you take that message, it falls flat because it's not true. It's not true. These brethren, their best life now was to persevere under trial and to consider it joy. And there was no hope probably of getting out from underneath said circumstances. They couldn't simply, with the American way, pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Anybody can go to college if they want to, right? <laughs> you see where I'm headed with this, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ can preach anywhere and everywhere the same because it's true anywhere and everywhere for red and yellow, black and white, all creeds, tribes, languages, cultures, places, you name it. The gospel of Jesus Christ preaches equally everywhere to all people. And it is indeed, I, I dare say it is when you get saved, let me tell you, it is indeed your best life now. Even if you're under suffering, it's not going to get any better. Because don't forget, does it say blessed? Does the Word of God say blessed? Cursed is the man who has to persevere under trial for Jesus. It doesn't say that at all. You know Jesus, you're blessed. With all the riches in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Freely at your disposal. Red and yellow, black and white. All colors, all nationalities. And no matter who you are, you persevere. Hang in there. No matter how hard it gets, persevere all the way to the end. All the way to the end. Listen, Bart Ehrman and others like him. And I'm going to throw in the likes of Josh Harris. You know Josh Harris? The I Kiss Dating Goodbye Josh Harris? Probably most of you hadn't heard of him. Because he too deconstructed his faith, divorced his wife, and went out into the woods to find himself. All such people, like the Airmans and like the Harrises of this world, are defined and described for us in God's Word. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us. Now, if you go contextually and you look into 1 John, who are the they? He's, the verse right before this, verse 18, says that there are many antichrists who have gone out into the world. So these are people who are antichrist. They're not the, the antichrist, but they're antichrist against Christ. They're people who are against Jesus. And so they have a message that is against antichrist. They, those who are against the Lord, against His gospel, they have deconstructed their faith. They speak differently now. They went out from us. They went out of the church of Jesus Christ from us. They moved away from us because they were not really of us. Wheat and tares can grow up side by side. They look identical. They can even have a faith claim and claim to have a faith. But eventually, if they punt their faith, they never had true saving faith. They had a faith claim only. That's what Bart Ehrman had. That's what Josh Harris had. Does that mean that God can't still save them? No, it doesn't mean that. And I would never proclaim to play God in their life that way. But the Scripture says once you've trampled underfoot the blood of Jesus... Being brought back to repentance might be a little bit more challenging and difficult. That's my paraphrase. 
They were really not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. So the Bart Ehrmans, the Josh Harrises, all said individuals, for whatever purpose it may be, they can't handle human suffering. How could there be a good, the problem of suffering in the world? How could there be a good God if he allows all this suffering? Ergo, he couldn't be good. Ergo, there must not be a God. All such foolish and faulty thinking, though they may have had a faith claim at one point or another, when they deconstruct their faith and when they trample underfoot the blood of Jesus, you can know for certain that it was a false claim of faith. Because you can't lose your salvation. And that's where a lot of people get mixed up. They say, well, but they had a faith claim. They said, I believe Jesus back when they were you know, five or eight. And so what they're doing now, they just don't know what they do. And they're still going to go to heaven just kicking and screaming. That's easy believism. That's cheap grace. That's what James has been arguing against from chapter 2 all the way through chapter 4. Those who would hold to a cheap grace would say that Bart Ehrman is in and that Josh Harris is in. It doesn't matter that they deconstructed their faith. It matters not, the least. No, John says that those who are against Christ, they eventually go out from us. They're not really of us. Listen, human suffering and trials have caused a lot of people to determine that there's not a good God. I get that. But the scriptures are very clear. God never sweeps suffering and human suffering under the rug. Listen, you know what he says about it? He says that I even created the day of calamity to be that which will bring glory to my name. We as Christians have to make certain that we are not trying to get God off some proverbial dock of some, of some non-believers mental shelf. They can erect all kinds of moral platitudes on how they say God should behave, and we don't have to come around and kind of construct theology in such a way that makes God look like he really is the Pillsbury Doughboy guy in the sky who just loves everybody equally. We just simply need to go to the Scriptures and say, what do the Scriptures say? Because the Scriptures say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You don't fear that God? You say that God has a problem? <laughs> You're going to find out in, in the end whenever you cease like the flowering grass and you fade away and you face that God. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. You're going to find out what true justice is really like. And for all eternity, to the glory of his name, you will be in a place for all eternity that will declare the glory of God through his perfect justice forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. A place called hell where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth and the flame never goes out. I always like it when people say, how could the flames be literal flames? Because it says it's a place of outer darkness. How can you have darkness and flames at the same point? I'm like, I don't know, but I'm not going to go there and find out. <laughs> you, want, you want to go there and find out? Not me. I'm not going to try to figure that one out. James is wanting these believers, by speaking to the non-believers, outwardly rich and inwardly poor, that there's a serious pitfall if you think wanting to be like them might be something that's for you. Don't do it. So come now, you rich. And notice what James says these rich ought to be doing. If they had the, only had the spiritual eyes to see and the enlightenment of God, come now, what? They should be what? Weeping and howling. Why? The Word of God does not mince its words. It says very clearly that there will be miseries, miseries, miseries. You know what the word for the miseries is in the Greek? Misery. You know what it means? Misery. It's horrible. It's not a place that you want to be. The Word of God doesn't mince its words. It's not trying to act like, oh, if there was a good God in heaven, there would be no place for such miseries either, would there? I mean, it's ridiculous the things that 
that sometimes we find believers trying to talk God off the dock as somehow He needs us to do that. Listen, unbelievers, you rich, you should be weeping and howling for the howling for the miseries which are coming upon you. But unfortunately, riches have a, 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 a an amazing way of dulling the senses of needing God in the person's life. Their wealth becomes for them a false sense of security, like the Proverbs say, the rich man's wealth is his fortress. Proverbs 18 again, a rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high tower in his own imagination, the false sense of security does wealth bring. And that's not just for unbelievers. That could be for believers alike. So never rely on your wealth as a source of security. Fall upon Christ and Him alone for all things concerning life and eternity. Again, James is well aware of Christ's teaching concerning the rich. This is why I had you look over to Matthew. I said 18. I meant 19. Did I say 18? I think I said 18. Did I say 18? I said 13. Matt says 13. You say 18. I'm going to say 19. Matthew 19, 23, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now these dispersed abroad, whom he says greetings to in James chapter 2, verse 1, these were primarily Jewish believers who grew up thinking Old Testament thoughts. And then Jesus, who they say is their Messiah, he shows up and he starts saying things that seem to run contrary to those things. He says it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And notice the disciples' response when they heard this. They were, they were astonished. Have you ever asked yourselves why would they have been astonished at such teaching? And then say back to Jesus, then who can be saved? What's so astonishing about that? Well, I would say it's because the astonishment of these disciples had everything to do with what they had previously been reading in their Old Testament scriptures was that God's approval was on the wealthy, that he had caused their cattle to never miscarriage or their rams or their lambs or whatever, and that he was the one that was causing them to prosper in everything. And then the poor, obviously, would be those whom God's hand was against. They were not walking in God's ways. They weren't walking according to God. Does this sound anything like the wealth and health prosperity gospel that gets preached today? They yank it right out of Old Testament principles. Such is the problem of going to the Old Testament, trying to find Old Testament principles, and saying that the church is now the extension of Israel. It's not. There's still a future for Israel. But that's what they were used to. This is why they're astonished. What do you mean it's difficult and hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? That would be proof that God's blessing was upon them. That's what we see all through our Old Testament. If that's the case, then Jesus, then who can be saved? In Luke 16, Jesus also says things to such disciples who are used to thinking one way and now under the new covenant looks differently. No servant can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and wealth. Cannot. It's just divine revealed scripture. You cannot serve God and money. In Matthew 6, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. This is where I think James may be picking up, are you seeing a little, notice some of the language where moth and rust destroy, right? So don't forget that. I think James picks up on some of this teaching from Jesus. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. James is saying to these rich, they should be weeping and howling for the miseries which are coming upon them. And I believe he's doing so in such a way to remind these brethren who are 
suffering under the hands of these rich, as we're going to see here in just a second later in our context. Do not give up. Do not switch desire to be in their place. Do not punt your faith thinking that you can have an easier way of life. Go strong for Jesus all the way to the end. And then in verse 2, notice the riches have what? Rotted. So over here, Jesus was saying, don't store up treasures where moth and rust destroy. James says to these rich, your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted. Again, the figurative language that James is using here. These people have amassed so much wealth that it went bad before they even could use it. And they had no use of using it. Now, if you think about their culture and our culture, we're thinking, oh, well, I'd go by myself, you know, a, another home in the Bahamas or a, over somewhere on the beach somewhere. I'd buy one up in the mountains. I'd have three cars at every one of these places. They didn't have those options. I'm going to go get me another camel. I can ride it across the desert. I'm going to get some more bamboo to build a bigger shack for me and my family. It's the biggest shack in town. Don't forget that. It's the biggest one. So they stored up their wealth in, in caves and in different places. And archaeological digs have even found large caches of wealth with rust and moth-eaten stuff. Just, just exactly like he's talking about right here. They didn't have the banks that you and I might try to store ours up in that might keep it from being rotted. But I think the essence of what James is saying is that it's, a, it's wastefulness. There's a wastefulness. You have amassed all this wealth for what? Well, he's about to tell them what. It's going to stand in judgment against them. It's going to rise up and stand in judgment against them in such a way that to let them know that you can't serve God in money, and you serve money. You chose to serve money. You probably heard the same preaching from Peter on the day of Pentecost that these brethren who are dispersed now because of their faith in Jesus as a result of Peter's preaching, you guys probably heard the same preaching of Peter and you said, no thank you. Nope. Not interested. And so now these people who have had to flee from the places in which they were living. They find themselves gathered up. Birds of a feather have probably flocked together, probably in a majority Jewish-type setting. And the wealthy are taking advantage of them. Remember the passage in Luke 16, the parable with Lazarus. Father Abraham, have mercy on me, send Lazarus, so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. James is saying to these rich, miseries are coming upon you. They would have some kind of a connection with what he was saying. And then in verse 3, notice James says something that seems a bit disjointed. He says, your gold and your silver have rusted at the very end of verse 3. Be a witness against you and consume your flesh like fire. Notice right here, this is the part that seems a bit disjointed. It is in, these, it is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. This is James' way of saying, it seems, judgment is near. It's in these last days that you have stored up your treasure. James places these people as living in the last days. At least that's what he's saying. It's in these last days. It's in the last days. So it seems that James is placing these individuals as individuals whom James is saying are living in the last days. And the day is quickly coming when all that stored up wealth, all the rich man's treasure will become a testimony against them as making wealth their God instead of making God their God, of rejecting the promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus himself, at the preaching at Pentecost that was probably made avail 
to them. They would have known of Luke 9, 25, for what is a man profit if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? They knew they should be storing up treasures in heaven. But such is the problem of unbelief. Notice the two verses that sandwich Verse 25 that we just read, For what is a man profit if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Notice, If anyone wishes to come after me, Jesus says, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will find it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. And then verse 25, for what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses his soul or loses or forfeits himself? For whoever, and now notice the passage just after this one, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. This is some of the hard teaching of Jesus and the gospel that is according to Jesus. This would have been some of the hard sayings that the apostles went about preaching following the day of Pentecost. And there were those that said no thank you to the preaching of Peter. And it seems in the context of James, these have become the wealthy landowners that these brethren, the brothers and sisters who lost everything because they decided to do this, they came after Jesus. And they denied themselves. They're learning and practicing how to daily take up their cross and follow him. They're doing all of these things. And as a result of doing these things that Jesus said, do this, they're in great persecution. They're under trial. They're under suffering and hardship. And James wants to give them a solid word of encouragement to not give up. Hang in there. The rich, they're the ones that should be weeping and howling if they only understood the miseries that were coming upon them. They don't get it. They don't see it. You have eyes to see. So hang in there all the way to the end. Now, another way that James shows the problem of them making God their money is the way they cheat and rob others to get ahead financially. He says, behold, in verse 4, the pay of the laborers, that would be the brethren working for them who have mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of Sabbath. Um, James uses this word here, the Lord of Sabbath, in a very strategic way. Your abuse of the laborers, you're withholding, these rich people are withholding their, their daily wage. He says, that's crying out against you to the Lord of Sabbath, Sabbath, which is an untranslated Greek word which simply means armies or hosts. This is a phrase that describes God as commander of the armies of heaven. And it's as if James is saying, when you cheat and defraud God's people, the Lord of the armies of heaven is the one to whom you will someday give an account. Isn't that awesome? It's like an assurance of ultimate justice coming one day. What's happening down here on earth is not unseen or forgotten in heaven. All the injustices, injustice, 
injustice, injustice that's taking place on planet Earth is not, un, God is not unaware of all those things. The Lord, who is the army, the, the, the head of the army of the Lord of Sabaoth, he will stand in your stead someday and justice will be meted out. And he says to those, in verse 5, he says to the rich, you've lived luxuriously on the earth and have led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Two words here says it all. Luxuriously and wanton pleasure. Luxuriously is from a word that basically means soft, softness, and wanton pleasure is from a single Greek word that has the idea of pursuing worldly pleasures, that, that idea of, of hedonistic desires. So there's a softness and a pursuit of worldly pleasures, and this is the way you rich are living at the expense of your day laborers who you're withholding their pay and these day laborers, if you don't know, these day laborers would get paid on a daily basis and they needed that money each and every day to feed themselves and their families. So to withhold the pay of a day laborer was a significant blight, human blight, uh, indeed. Which is why James says in 6, Notice the severity. You have condemned and, what? Put to death the righteous man. Now, if this is to be taking, taken in a literal sense, it would seem that James is indicating that the severity of this, which would also be something indicative of the severity of the trials and the persecutions that they were enduring and called to endure, endure with joy, the severity of, of those conditions were such that some were even dying, probably due to starvation. I, I'm not certain how to take this in some metaphorical sense. It seems to me that the most straightforward reading of the text is that their sin against the righteous, those whom are God's truly saved people, has cost the lives of some of those dear brothers and sisters. The same ones that James is saying, hang in there, persevere all the way to the end. Why? Because you're blessed. You see, the, you see how crazy we Christians are? You, perhaps your wife, perhaps some of your kids are starving to death, and James is saying you're blessed. That's your best life now, brother and sister. This is why we must, as believers, train ourselves to live with a biblical worldview. Paul said it. To die is gain. Oh, death, where's your sting? It's been swallowed up in victory. People scurrying about on planet earth, afraid of dying, afraid of death, afraid of the, water, the, the hereafter. Listen, with a biblical worldview, we can be assured of the hereafter. We know in whom we have believed, in whom, in whom we have trusted, our very souls, all the way to the end of the line. The suffering on planet earth may indeed be tedious and difficult and harsh, and we see people we love suffer and perhaps even die. Thankfully, it's not reached us yet, and perhaps it won't as a result of, this, of the condemnation, the sin against believers, the righteous have been put to death. We know that there's a, a trail of blood from the martyrs that have come down from the past 2,000 years, and it would seem that these may be some of the first who gave their life clinging tightly to Jesus. Amen? That's what it seems like to me. I think verse 6 is somewhat of a snapshot of what these believers, when you go all the way back full circle, chapter 1, snapshot of what these Jewish believers were facing on a daily basis. James caught word of it and knew he had a need to write them a letter of encouragement 
to hang in there and to persevere all the way to the end, meaning death. But death's not the end. He's, there's a promised crown of life to those who persevere with him all the way to the end. Brothers, never forget that, is what he's saying to them. And so in our passage this morning, James is addressing the ultimate justice of God that will come against those who are oppressors of God and of God's people. And he's kind of showing them here that all that glitters isn't gold. You want true wealth? Go broke on Jesus. For all eternity, he'll never let you down. This is a difficult passage for us to make application of because we tend to, we have fridges full of food. We've got nice, house, nice homes. Comparatively to others, we're, we have a hard time really putting our shoes and walking a few miles in these Jewish believers' footsteps who are daily facing potential starvation. And they're going to work and they're doing the labor because they know they have to do the labor to get the money. They couldn't say, hey, we're not cutting your grass unless you pay us or whatever it was. We're not going to do your harvest. No, you, you go and you do your work, you harvest, and you hope and pray that they pay you, and they clearly weren't. It's difficult for us to walk a mile in their shoes, so I want to encourage us today as we give consideration of this passage later today as we contemplate on the Word of God to allow it to richly dwell within us to think about this. And then to think 2,000 years later, are there brothers and sisters on planet Earth who are enduring hardship, mistreatment, from oppressors who need our prayers. That they may read the book of James and find in it an encouragement that will cause them to persevere all the way to the end and say, as Paul said, to die is gain. I don't know, I'm just thinking about perhaps some brothers and sisters in Afghanistan maybe right now who too probably are facing some kind of hardship now all of a sudden that came upon them unawares and probably will end up costing them all of their lives. Really. Because they will condemn and put to death the righteous man for their belief in Jesus Christ. And so maybe this will cause us to take pause within the culture in which we live and to pray for our brothers and sisters abroad who have been dispersed for one reason or another and find themselves and similarly ill treatment as do these here. Amen? Let's pray.